passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, this morning we are continuing our journey in Advent through the book of Luke. And we're spending a couple weeks just looking at the first one or two chapters of this book, uh, looking at how we can prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus. To do that, last week we looked at Luke chapter 1 and we saw this story of how, how God was really preparing the way for his son Jesus to come. He was preparing the way for God himself to dwell among his people. And then specifically, we saw that with the pronouncement of John the Baptist's birth and this miraculous story of how John's parents, even though that they were past the age of childbirth uh, and were barren, were actually able to give birth to a son who was going to be set apart for service to God. Specifically, as we were studying that passage, we looked at how God is a God who keeps his promises. Not only is he a God who keeps his promises, but those promises are ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus. When we think of the promises of of God, we can look at Jesus and know that those will be fulfilled. This morning, we're going to continue our way through the book of Luke, continue to prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus. And to do that, we're actually going to take a a moment and, and look at the purpose of the book of Luke as a whole. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38 this morning, but we're going to take a few seconds and just read the first four verses of the book of Luke. And this is where Luke describes the purpose, the reason why he is writing this book. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Luke chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to just start here in verse 1. He says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That last verse there, verse 4, where Luke says, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's the purpose. That's the reason why Luke is writing this book. He wants us to have certainty about the things of Jesus, to know more about who God is. And that's true of of Luke chapter 1, and it's true of Luke chapter 24. It's true of the book of Acts, which was actually written by Luke as well. And so when we look at a passage taken from this book, we have to to ask, how does this answer Luke's purpose? Luke's purpose of us knowing more of who God is. See, I think a lot of times when we read the first two chapters of Luke, the story of the birth of Jesus, we we tend to just think that it was Luke giving us the opportunity to satisfy our curiosity. It talks about things that really aren't talked about in the rest of the Gospels. Or we, we think that Luke just wants to give us the rest of the story. And while those are both true... The ultimate reason why Luke is writing these things for us in Luke chapter 1 about the birth of John the Baptist and Luke chapter 2 about the birth of Jesus is ultimately so we can understand more of who Jesus is and to understand more of what Jesus has done for us. And maybe you've lost sight of that this morning. Maybe you are so used to the Christmas story. Maybe you're so used to Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 after hearing it over and over and over again every Christmas season that you've started to just skim through it. 
You've started to just know what happens. You know the rest of the story. But what if Luke is right? What if Luke does has, have something for us from this passage that can teach us, can reveal more of who Jesus is to us, can give us certainty concerning who this Jesus is? That's what our passage this morning does. It tells us more about who Jesus is. It tells us more about what Jesus will do with his life. It's a, it's a passage that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It is the story of the angel Gabriel coming to share the good news with Mary that she's going to bear a son, and this son is going to be the son of God himself. It's going to be used to save the people of Israel and, and honestly save people from every tribe and tongue on the face of the planet going to be used to save them. It's going to happen to her while she is a virgin. It's a passage that we have heard many times before. And if we were to go verse by verse through this and, and dig down deep, it would honestly take us weeks to look at this. And so what we're going to do, we're going to do something a little different than we normally do on a Sunday morning. We're just going to zero in on a couple verses here, verses 31 through 33, and what, ask ourselves, what do these passages, what do these verses tell us about who Jesus is and tell us about what Jesus is going to do? Because that's ultimately what Luke wants us to be doing. He wants us to wrestle through, what does this tell me about who Jesus is? What does this give me certainty about concerning the things of God? So what we're going to do is we're actually going to read the entire passage here, verses 26 through 38. And then we're going to, again, we're going to jump into verses 31 through 33. And what we're going to see is that these verses tell us five truths about who Jesus is will be. And we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at those five truths. So uh, if you are able, I invite you to stand as we read uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. And please follow along as I read aloud. Starting in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amen. You may be seated. I mentioned we're going to spend most of our time in verses 31 through 33 and, and look at what these verses tell us about who Jesus is. We're going to start in verse 31 with what the angel tells Mary to name her son, and that is Jesus. You might not 
think that that tells us a lot about who Jesus is and what he will be like, but it tells us this. The first truth for us to learn is this, that he will be a savior. He will be a savior. See, the name Jesus literally means in Hebrew, the Lord saves. Jesus means the Lord saves. The naming of this child is a significant thing because he has been named what he has come to earth to do. It tells us a lot about what God thinks that our greatest need as humanity is. If God thought that our greatest need was for a new form of entertainment, he would have sent an entertainer. If God thought that our greatest need was for financial security, then he would have sent an economist. But God knew that our greatest need here on the face of the planet was for a savior, for someone to come and deliver us from the chains of sin and the chains of death that encompass us. And so he sent a savior and he named that savior Jesus. You might be saying that, well, that that sounds good, Jordan, but how do you know that this is referring to Jesus as a savior from my sins? After all, isn't that what the people of Israel wrestled through? The people of Israel, when they were expecting someone to come and deliver them, they were thinking that someone was coming to deliver them from the people of Rome. They longed for a Messiah to come and bring them political, uh, political liberation. And yet the fact that God comes to deliver them from their sins is really telling because it tells us that our greatest need isn't to be delivered from an oppressive political regime. Our greatest need is to be delivered from death, to be delivered from sin. And that is why Jesus comes for us. And you may be saying, well, Jordan, I know that. I understand that. I've heard that many times that Jesus comes to save us. So what's the big deal about this? Well, first of all, the fact that Jesus, his name is the Lord saves, it tells us that God comes to save those who can't save themselves. I can't save myself. You can't save yourself. Every time we try to save ourselves, we just dig ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper into a hole. But God sent a savior. God sent someone who chose to save us. Not only did he send him, but he delighted in sending him. God sent us a savior. And also he offers salvation to people who are in desperate need of it. Each and every one of us is in desperate need of salvation, desperate need of someone to come and rescue us out of the pit where we once were. And that person who has come to do that is Jesus. First thing that the angel, tells, uh, the angel Gabriel tells Mary is that her son, this Jesus, will be a savior. Second thing is found in verse 32, and it's this, that he will be great. Her son will be great. And I wrestled this past week about what would Mary think when she heard this? What is Mary thinking of when she hears that she's going to have a son who's going to be great? She's probably thinking that her son is going to be well-known. He's going to be powerful, that he is going to be a wonderful CEO of a large Fortune 500 company or a football star or someone who's going to lead the people of Israel into battle and uh, lead the people of Israel into victory over Rome. But is that what the people, or is that what the angel Gabriel meant when he said that her son was going to be great? After all, it didn't look like her son was going to be great. Just look at where Mary is. She's in Nazareth. 
Now, when I grew up, I grew up in, in southwest Iowa in a, a small town about half the size of Spencer, about 5,000 people. Uh, it was far from a hub of civilization, uh, har, far from a hub of culture. But about five miles from where I lived was an even smaller town named Newmarket. And if you want to hear a funny story, you should ask Crystal about the first time she went to Newmarket and got to experience it, this little town. But Newmarket is a place that, even though it's just five miles east of my town in Iowa, it feels like you go several hundred miles into the foothills of West Virginia. If you understand what I'm getting at there, I, I'm not going to say any more than that. It, it's, a, it's a poor community. It's small. It's insignificant. It's found in the middle of nowhere It was a dead-end place. In a lot of ways, Nazareth is a lot like Newmarket. It was a place that was small. In fact, Newmarket was about 500 people. Nazareth was about 500 people lived there. It was poor. No one besides the people in the New Testament even mentioned the name of the city of Nazareth. It was unimportant. No one cared about it. You would expect no one great to come from Nazareth. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples, when he finds out that Jesus is from Nazareth, says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? The answer, of course, was no. You don't expect anything good to come from Nazareth. Its reputation preceded it. And its reputation wasn't a good place. And yet that's where the angel, Gabriel, shows up. Is he in the wrong place? And then you look at who he's talking to. Last week when we looked, he, he appears in the temple of God. He appears to a priest. And this priest is considered to be righteous. He walks blamelessly before God. And yet, now he's appearing to a girl named Mary. It's interesting that the passage doesn't tell us that Mary is blameless. It doesn't tell us that Mary is righteous like it did with Zechariah. Is she? Yes. But the author is trying to make a differentiation, a distinction here between John's father and Jesus' mother. You see, Mary was from Nazareth, and so she was poor. She was uneducated. Women that in those days weren't educated, and so she was uneducated. She wasn't married, and so she had zero social status. She was probably only 12 or 13 years old. And yet the angel of God appears to her saying that she is going to give birth to a son who's going to be great. Then you look at her uh, soon-to-be husband, Joseph. Joseph also, being from Nazareth, was poor. He was an insignificant person who had no power. He wasn't well-educated. He was probably only 16 or 17 years old. Just like Mary, he was the last person that you would expect to give birth to a son who was going to be great. And then you look at Jesus' life. The first 30 years of Jesus' life, he was a nobody. He spent 30 years in Nazareth working as a carpenter just like his father. You have to imagine that the, the angel's words to Mary would run through her head every now and then, and she began to wonder if she had just imagined them. That if the angel really knew what he was talking about when he said that her son was going to be great. But of course, at the end of Jesus' life, it does look like he's going to be great. He begins to gather a crowd. He begins to get people to follow him. He begins performing miracles. And it just looks like he's about to fulfill the words of the angel Gabriel here when he is killed. Not only is he killed, but he 
dies a criminal's death. Not only is he not great, but he's a disgrace. So what is the angel talking about when he says that Mary's son will be great? First of all, he's telling us that Mary's son will be great because of who he is. See, Jesus is not the illegitimate child of a poor man and woman from a poor, middle-of-nowhere, insignificant town in Israel. The book of John tells us that Jesus is God himself, that he is the Word made flesh. In John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is telling us right at the very beginning of his gospel that Jesus is God in the flesh. And in the book of Colossians, I think it's in your sermon notes. I'm not going to read that. But in the book of Colossians, he tells us, Paul tells us that Jesus, in Jesus, the fullness of the deity of God dwells. That God dwells in Jesus. He is great because of who he is, and he's great because of what he will do. In the book of Colossians, again, Paul tells us that Jesus reconciles us as humanity to God. In the book of Romans, he tells us that that Jesus intercedes for us before God. And in the book of 2 Corinthians, he tells us that Jesus has made us a part of God's new creation, that we are made new because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus isn't great because he was the best carpenter in Galilee. Jesus isn't great because he ran for political office and won. Jesus isn't great because he liberated the people of Israel from the Roman oppressors. Jesus is great because he bridged the gap between God and humanity. Because of what he has done on our behalf. And you may begin to wonder, well, why on earth is that good news? It's good news because Jesus is great, and that means that we don't have to be. We live in a culture that pressures us nonstop to be someone to make a name for ourselves, to make a lasting impact in the lives of those who are around us. And it's not always a bad thing. Places a constant pressure on us to be the best, to be great. And the fact that Jesus is great gives us the freedom to not have to be. Because Jesus is great, we don't have to be. God will remember us. We don't have to do something great to catch God's attention. Because he came in the person of Jesus and died for us. Not only that, but Jesus' greatness models what true greatness really looks like. There's a story in in Matthew chapter 18 of a conversation between Jesus and the disciples. I just want to read uh, four verses of it here to you. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In Mark chapter 10 Jesus says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus shows us what true greatness looks like and that true greatness is self-sacrificial and is focused on the benefit of others. So that's the second thing that the angel Gabriel tells Mary that her son will be. 
he will be great. Third thing is that he will be the son of God. This is found, again, in verse 32. I I love this uh, phrase because it always brings up a lot of debates about what exactly it means. There are many different ways that people tend to interpret son of God, but I, I think that the best is the simplest. What it means when it says that Jesus is the son of God means that Jesus is the son of God. In the Old Testament, this phrase, sons of God, was used to refer to the angels every now and then. And this is a way of of talking about their status. They were higher than humans, but they were less than God. And so they were somewhere in between. It didn't mean that they were literally his children, that they were literally his sons. It just was referring to their status. Also in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is called the son of God occasionally. Specifically during the time of the wilderness, when the people of Israel had just escaped from Egypt. They are called God's son. What's in view here is that God has a special relationship with the people of Israel. They are like a son to him. They will receive his inheritance. And just like a son is supposed to be like their father, the people of Israel are supposed to be like God. They are the son of God. And then probably the most common way that this is used in the Old Testament is to refer to the kings of Israel. The kings of Israel, several times in the Bible, are called the son of God. David was referred to as God's son occasionally. And in the book of Psalms, we have a psalm that was sung whenever the king was crowned. It's Psalm chapter 2, and that's why we find this verse in it. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, it says this, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What's in view here is that that God chose the person who was going to rule over his nation, Israel. So in this sense, the phrase son of God, when referring to the king, really meant something along the lines of, this is the one God has chosen to be the ruler of Israel. So those are a couple different ways that Son of God is used in the Old Testament. But what's in view here? What does Luke mean when he calls Jesus the Son of the Most High in this verse? And just a couple of verses later, he calls him the Son of God. I think there are two things. First, he is referring to Jesus in the same way that the kings of old would be referred to. That Jesus was the coming king of Israel. He was the one that God had chosen to lead his people. He was the one who was going to sit on the throne of God. But if we just stop there, and if that's all we think of when we think of Jesus as the Son of God, then we haven't gone far enough. If you look at verse 35, you'll see quickly that that just makes no sense about who Jesus is. Something special is happening in Jesus. Something different is happening in Jesus that has never happened before. And that is that Jesus is literally God himself, that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity who has come in the person of Jesus to dwell among humanity. Throughout the Gospels, we have different uh, examples of them trying to show us that Jesus is God. In fact, that's one of the primary focuses of every single gospel is to prove to us that Jesus is God. It's found in basically every story of the gospels. It's telling us over and over and over again who Jesus is, and that is Jesus is God. I just want to give one example to you from the book of Luke, and that's Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. This is a story that it's really short. In Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25, Jesus is out on the Sea of Galilee. He's with his disciples. And all of a sudden, a storm breaks out. 
a storm begins to uh, rage on them, and the disciples panic and think that they're actually going to sink and to die. And so they wake Jesus up because he's taking a nap and say, Jesus, do something. Save us. And Jesus rebukes the wind, rebukes the waves. The storm is calmed. And then we have this verse in, in verse 25. I love this verse. The disciples are in just absolute shock. And they say to one another, who is this that he commands the winds and the waves and they obey him? And that's how the story ends. It ends with that question. It's a little bit of a cliffhanger. The first time I read that, I I wondered, well, why did Luke end it like that? Why did he just end it with a question? And I realized, well, Luke wants us to answer that same question. Luke wants us to wrestle with who this Jesus is. He wants us to think back to a time in Israel's history where they were saved from water, that they were saved from winds, that someone showed control over the winds and waves and saved the people of Israel. He's referring back to the time of the Exodus. He's referring back to the time where God parted the Red Sea and he used wind to part the waves. He had absolute control over nature. And Luke is saying, you've never seen anything like this before, except one other time. And that was when God parted the Red Sea, where God showed that he had control over the wind and the waves. You ask this question, who is this that he commands the winds and the waves and they obey him? The answer is that this is Jesus. And this Jesus is the son of God. This Jesus is God himself. And that's what Luke has in mind when he's referring to Jesus as the Son of God. He's saying that Jesus is God. And this is good news for us because Jesus being God means that he can save anyone that he wants to save. That he is strong enough to save us from whatever junk we have in our past. Whatever baggage we carry on to. No matter how many times we've turned our back on him. No matter how many times we've run away from him. Jesus can save us because he is God. Not only that, but because he's God, he's able to bridge the gap between us and God. That he makes up the distance between us. That he is able to serve as our substitute, as both fully man and fully God. The angel Gabriel tells Mary that Jesus is the Son of God. Fourth thing that he tells her is this, that he will be king. He will be king. Found in verses 32 and 33. In the year 587 BC, the nation of Judah was destroyed. Uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. The king of Israel at that time was sent into exile. And almost immediately after that, the people of Israel began longing for God to send them a new king. See, God had promised to send them a king to make everything right. And this was the focus of their hope. The thing that they longed for constantly. They longed for the return of a king who was promised in uh, all of the Old Testament books, and they thought that this would mean that they would return to the glory days of Israel, like things would become just like they were when David was king. But when we see Jesus, when we see what Jesus has done, we realize that he will not just be king of the Jews, because that's not good enough 
for him. Jesus isn't content with just being king over a small patch of dirt in this universe. Jesus plans on being king over the entire universe. He wasn't going to just be king of the Jews. He's going to be king of people taken from every tribe and language and tongue and nation on the face of the planet. Jesus is king of the entire universe. And one day, that kingdom will be fully realized. See, this is good news because it reminds us that God is sovereign. Reminds us that God is in charge, that he is the one who is in control in the midst of the craziness of our lives, in the midst of the times where we have no idea what's going on. The fact that God sits on his throne, that Jesus sits on his throne is good news because it gives us hope. It gives us confidence that he is worthy of our trust in the midst of these situations. It's also good news because there is not a square inch of the universe that God doesn't rule. And that means that there isn't a square inch of the universe that God doesn't have jurisdiction over. When you are hurt, when you are wronged, when bad things happen to you and you want to get even, you can rest assured that God is in charge, that God is a just judge, and that Jesus will handle it for you. Jesus will be and is king. And the fifth thing that the angel Gabriel tells to Mary is this. He will reign forever. He will reign forever. See, Jesus is unlike any other ruler in human history. The United States has been around for over 200 years. And in those 200 years, we've had 44 presidents. Of those 44 presidents, none of them except for FDR has been in office for more than eight years. None of their reigns, if you will, lasted forever. Or just look at the political landscape and how much has changed since Jesus walked the earth about 2,000 years ago. When Jesus was on the earth, the greatest nation in the world was the Roman Empire. Since then, we've seen Spain, we've seen uh, the Turkish Empire, we've seen the British Empire, we've seen the uh, French Empire, the Germans, the Soviets, the United States. Many more have become in charge of the world. And every single one of those nations, every single one of those empires has waned in power or it will wane in power. But not Jesus' kingdom. Not Jesus' rule and authority. See, the people of Israel longed for a coming king. They longed for someone to come and make everything right. But they got more than they bargained for when Jesus came. Their expectations of what God was going to do were shattered when Jesus came. Because again, Jesus wasn't just content with restoring the nation of Israel to its former glory. He was intent on being king of the entire universe. And not only that, because he was the son of God, because he is God himself, he ruled and will rule forever. You know, in the 1920s in Germany, uh, there was a big political crisis. It was right after the end of the First World War, and the, the people of Germany felt like they had been completely embarrassed on the national stage. With the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, they felt like they had to give up far too much because of what they had done in World War I. And during that time, the people of Germany longed for someone to make their nation great. And because of that longing, because of that desire to be great, the German monarchy was actually overthrown, and a person named Adolf Hitler took power over Germany. 
just like the German monarchy, just like the Roman Empire in the year 400, or in the 400s, just like the United States will one day, every nation on the face of the planet will meet its end. Every kingdom will fall and fail except for one, and that is Jesus's. Jesus's kingdom will never be defeated. He will never lose his rule, his authority, and his reign. He will be seated on the throne forever, and his kingdom will overcome. All other nations will fade into the background as Jesus's kingdom is exalted because he will reign forever. And friends, that's the good news of Christmas. That's the good news of our passage this morning, that Jesus is king. That Jesus is the one who reigns, the one who rules. See, Jesus is a loving and compassionate king who sacrificed himself on our behalf. Jesus is a warrior king who freed us from slavery to sin and death. Jesus is a just king who will bring justice and righteousness to this world. Jesus is king. You might be wondering, well, where do we go from here? What does that have to do with me today? A couple things. First, I I think it helps us rejoice. We should rejoice this Christmas season because we know that Jesus is king. We know that Jesus is the one who's still seated on his throne. One of the ways that we invite you to rejoice is to use our Advent devotionals that we've been working our way through. If you don't have one, I invite you to grab one on your way out. It's a way to help us rejoice that Jesus is king. He is the one who is in charge. Another thing is to trust. Everything that the angel Gabriel said about Jesus came true. Jesus was a savior and is a savior. Jesus was great and is great. Jesus was and is the son of God. Jesus was and is king. Jesus was and will rule forever. And because of that, he is worthy of our trust. Not just our trust for salvation in one time event when we pray a prayer, but every single day as we go through our days to trust that he is worthy of giving everything to, of ruling over our days. We trust in Jesus. And the third thing is this, just to obey. I love the way this passage ends because it's such a powerful, convicting look at what obedience is. I just want to read the last verse of what Mary does here. It says this, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, Let it be to me according to your word. Right after Mary is told that God is going to use her to do something he has never done before, her simple response is, God, I'm your servant. I'm here to do what you would have me do. And I pray that that would be the same thing that we would say as well that we, we see what God wants us to do, what God would have us do as his children in Scripture, that we would just bow our knees and say, God, here I am. I am your servant. I will do what you want me to do because you are my good, 
righteous, holy king, that you are worthy of praise, that you are worthy of trust, and you are worthy of my obedience. Friends, that's what this passage is telling us. That's what Luke is getting at. He wants to remind us that this little baby in the manger is king. And that is good news. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are king. We thank you that you reign and rule, even when it doesn't look like it. God, we thank you that you are at work building your kingdom even now, that you are using us to do so. And God, as we remember that you are our Savior, that you are great, that you are the Son of God, that you are King and that you reign forever, help us to rejoice. Help us to trust you. Help us to obey you. Help us to find our home in you. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.